Again, we're very grateful that you've chosen to worship here at Prairie View this morning. As we pick up today, we're continuing in our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke, entitled A Journey with Jesus. And last week, we read Luke's account of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is a challenging sermon that flies in the face of everything the world tells us and everything that we're tempted to believe about blessing and hardship, about how to treat our enemies, about how to treat the poor, and how to treat each other. And in that sermon, the action that Jesus argues for seems to be impractical. It seems to be extreme. We might read that sermon and think, you know, if we actually obey these words, we're going to be walked all over. We're going to get taken advantage of. If nothing else, we're definitely going to stick out from the world around us. Well, that kind of seems to be the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Followers of Jesus are supposed to stick out. Our community of faith is supposed to be different because while we live and work and play in the kingdoms of man, deep down we're citizens of the kingdom of God. So this morning we pick up in chapter 7 and 8. We're not going to look at every single verse of chapter 7 and 8. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 7, but there's plenty of stuff to look at in this one chapter alone. In chapter 7, we're going to see a very large cast of characters to learn about. We're going to see very, very different people facing very different circumstances who Jesus helps in very different ways. And yet, in spite of their differences, we'll also see something they all have in common and what it has to do with us today. So with that, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verse 1. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be found on page 737. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you before you leave today. But before we do any reading, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, again, we're very grateful that we can come here and that we can sing and pray and take communion and hear from your word and just worship God. Again, so many things demand our time and demand our attention throughout the week, whether it's things in our communities or our neighborhoods or our schools or our workplaces or our families. It's just so often difficult to get time with you. And so, God, we're grateful for one hour every single Sunday morning that truly is just set apart for you. God, I pray that as we all come in here with different experiences, different successes, different failures, different backgrounds, different problems, God, that we would just cast our problems at your feet, that we would trust that you are faithful to care for us, that you are faithful to provide for us, and that you really do love us. God, we love you. We thank you. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, that's referring back to the Sermon on the Mount, so after the sermon is over, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. 
Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So, chapter 7, we see our first story, and we see our first two characters. The first character is, of course, the centurion. Now, the centurion is a man of some importance. He's a Roman military leader in charge of roughly 100 men. But not only is he a military leader, he appears to have a little bit of politician in him. Maybe a little bit of philanthropist in him. He was a significant factor in the Jews having their synagogue built in Capernaum. So obviously they hold him in very high regard. But the second character is, of course, the centurion's servant. Now he may just be a servant, he may just be a slave, but he has proven his value. He has proven his worth. And if he's been with the centurion for a very long time, it's certainly possible that he's not just a servant. At this point, he could be true, genuine friends with the centurion. But of course, the problem arises. The centurion's servant is sick at the point of death. And of course, the centurion doesn't want to lose his valued servant. And we can assume that the servant doesn't want to die. A big problem is on their hands. So the centurion sends some of his Jewish friends, because remember, they did kind of owe him some favors to fetch Jesus and heal his sick servant. And as the friends are leading Jesus back to meet the centurion, back to meet his servant, they're intercepted with another message. The message from the centurion simply says, Jesus, I am not worthy to even have you in my home. But I still believe that you can heal my servant even from a distance. All you have to do is speak. You see, the centurion knew a thing or two about saying things and getting things done. When he tells a soldier to go, the soldier goes. When he tells someone to do this, they do it. The centurion knows what it's like to have a voice that carries power and carries authority. He knows what it's like to be the kind of person that when you speak, things get done. And he views Jesus the exact same way. Jesus, if you just speak, my servant will be healed. You don't have to see him. You don't have to touch him. You don't have to come under my roof because I'm not even worthy to have you in my house anyway. Of course, Jesus hears this answer from the centurion, and it shows great faith. The centurion is so confident in Jesus' power that he doesn't even think he has to see or touch the servant. But it also shows something else. The centurion shows great humility. The centurion says that he's not worthy to have Jesus in his home, even though everyone else around, those Jews who went to Jesus initially, all they could talk about was how worthy the centurion was, how much he had done, how Jesus kind of owed him this favor. But the centurion doesn't have that attitude at all. They basically tell Jesus, come on, he's a good guy. He deserves some help. Give him some break. But the centurion, 
He doesn't consider himself worthy. It shows great humility. So Jesus commends his faith. He says the word. The servant is healed. In the process, Jesus gets a nice little shot in at God's people, noting that it's not an Israelite who has such great faith. It's not one of the religious leaders who has such great faith. It's a lowly Gentile. Because sometimes the people with the greatest faith are the people you'd least expect. And the humble, believing centurion, his sick servant, the ones that had a massive problem on their hands that only Jesus could fix, they turn it over to Jesus, they lay it at his feet, and Jesus fixes the problem. Let's go to another story. Verse 11 of chapter 7. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So, another story, two more characters. And this time, we see them in the midst of a funeral. We see a woman grieving over her deceased son, but she's not just any woman. Look at the details that Luke includes about her. He specifically mentions that she's a widow. He specifically mentions that this was her only son. And of course, the second character is that deceased son. The deceased son is already on the bier. That was similar to a stretcher, maybe a type of casket that would carry him to his burial. And if this young man is already on the bier, there's no doubt that he's passed away. There's no debate about it. He's not waking up. By this point, his body has already been washed. It's already been anointed. He's probably been wrapped up in some type of burial cloths. The point is that he's not going anywhere. And of course, there's a problem. The problem is not just that this woman has lost her child, who she loved greatly. Although that is certainly a huge problem. The problem goes deeper than that. Because if this woman has no husband, like Luke said, and if this woman now has no son, like Luke said, she's in big trouble. How's she going to survive? You think back to the centurion, for example. If the centurion had lost his servant, I'm sure he would have mourned. I'm sure he would have grieved. I'm sure he would have been terribly upset. But you know what? You have the funeral. You mourn a little while. You put out a classified ad, you get a new servant, you train him, you move on with life. The centurion would have landed on his feet. He would have been all right. Not so much with this woman. With no son and no husband in that culture, there's a very good chance that she's got nothing to look forward to but poverty. And if she doesn't want that to happen, she may have to resort to some very degrading ways of making money if you know what I mean. She's at rock bottom. 
She has nowhere to go. She's got a huge problem on her hands. But that's when Jesus steps in. He has compassion on the woman. He stops the funeral, speaks to the deceased young man, raises him from the dead. Think about that. He raises him from the dead. A man being carried to his grave site is raised from the dead. That's a huge deal. The people around declare that a prophet is among them, that God has visited his people. They've never seen anything like this before. But believe it or not, that's not even the main point of the miracle. The point of the miracle is not just that someone rose from the dead, as impressive as that is. The miracle is really about the mother. Jesus specifically gives the young man back to his mother when he rises from the dead. This isn't just a resurrection that occurs. A woman's hope for survival, when she had nowhere else to go, that's been restored. That helpless and grieving mother had a huge problem that only Jesus could fix. And sure enough, like the centurion, Jesus did just that. One more story. Jump forward to verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. One more story, two more characters in chapter 7. The first character this time is, of course, the Pharisee. And what makes him different is that unlike the other people we've encountered, he's the one person who doesn't appear to have any problems at all. The Pharisee is a respected member of the community. He's a homeowner. He has the means to invite Jesus over for a meal. He seems to have it pretty good. But then we see the second character, a sinful woman from the city. That phrase, a sinful woman from the city, indicates that she's probably a prostitute. Really, we don't know how she got there. Maybe she got there because she lost her husband. And she lost her only son. But we don't really know. Now there's a problem. The Pharisee didn't have a problem before, but now he's a little annoyed with this sinful woman interrupting their meal. She walks in. She's making kind of a scene at this point. She's crying. She's emotional. She wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. She wets his feet with her tears. She anoints him with ointment. All this really weird stuff right smack in the middle of dinner. That's a problem. It's kind of weird. People are going to go talk about how horrendously that meal went at this Pharisee's house. But on top of that, Jesus seems okay with it. He's just sitting back and letting it happen. Now, if he really was a prophet, if he really was the Son of God the way some people are saying he is, surely he'd know better than to associate with a woman like this, a sinner like her. 
surely Jesus knows better than to let her near him, to let her speak with him, to let her touch him, to let someone like her worship him. But then Jesus does something amazing. Jesus takes advantage of this opportunity to show that the sinful woman, she's not the only person with the problem in the story. Verse 40. Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, that's the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, but you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus takes advantage of the situation to show the Pharisee, who didn't think he had any problems, that he actually does have a problem. And the Pharisee's problem is worse than the centurion losing his servant. The Pharisee's problem is even worse than the mother losing her child and struggling to survive. Now, by all means, the sinful woman, sure, she has her own problems. Jesus doesn't deny for a second that this woman is a sinner. He doesn't deny for a second that she is a sinner who needs repentance. He doesn't deny for a second that she needs forgiveness. But here's the thing about the Pharisee. His problem is bigger. Because he seems to have forgotten that while his sin may not look like hers, while in the eyes of the world his sin may not be as great as hers, he forgets that he's just as much in need of grace and just as much in need of forgiveness as she is. He's not any better off. She certainly owed a debt that she couldn't repay. But the Pharisee did too. And he appears to have forgotten that. So Jesus teaches the Pharisee this eternally valuable lesson. He forgives the woman of her sin, and he sends her on her way. So, you put all stories together, and we have six very different people. Powerful centurion, helpless mother. We have the servant on his deathbed. We have the young man who has already died. We have the righteous Pharisee, at least in his own eyes, and the unrighteous prostitute. But then we also have some very different problems. The centurion didn't want to lose his servant. The servant didn't want to die. The mother didn't want to lose her son. The son can't provide for his mother if he dies. 
The Pharisee didn't understand God's grace. And yet the sinful woman needed a lot of it. You look at all the stories. You look at all the characters. And you start to see a pattern emerging. The pattern is that every single person has a problem. Even the people who convince themselves that they don't have any problems. No matter their background, no matter their wealth, no matter their race, no matter their age, no matter their vocation, every single one of them, they all have problems. And all of these problems are problems that only Jesus can address. It continues in chapter 8. The disciples are helplessly tossed about in a storm. They're fearing for their lives. But then Jesus steps in and he fixes the problem. A demon-possessed man is tormented, an outcast, but then Jesus steps in and fixes the problem. A synagogue ruler has a child who's died, but then Jesus steps in and fixes the problem. A woman has a gruesome disease that leaves her religiously unclean, but then Jesus steps in and he fixes the problem. Over and over again, esteemed and outcast, Upstanding and shady, self-sufficient and dependent, male and female, Jew and Gentile, every single one of them, they all have a problem that only Jesus can fix. But, what does that have to do with us? I mean, it's not like we have problems, right? I mean, we live in a place where we all have equal access to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We all live in safe neighborhoods and drive nice cars and live in nice houses and eat good meals and send our good kids to good schools and go to work at decent jobs and have good educations, right? Right? None of us have any problems. Yeah, right. Every single one of us, we all have problems. And maybe our problems aren't like those of the people that we met today. But our problems are still very real. But then here's the real scary part. Back to that Pharisee. His problem was that he didn't know he had a problem. He didn't know he had a problem until Jesus exposed it. And so the truth is that if you're sitting here this morning and legitimately thinking that you don't have any problems, then you're fooling yourself. You may not have material problems. By the world's standards, you may really have it all. Like that Pharisee, you may appear to have it all together and figured out. But if you spend any time with Jesus, if you spend any time in the powerful word of God, you will find out that you do have a problem. Jesus will expose your problem. Look at Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 22. A verse many of us have heard so many times before, but we need to keep hearing it. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. According to the Apostle Paul, you have a problem. Now that sounds scary. That sounds intimidating. That's not really good news necessarily. But if it makes you feel any better, 
Your problem is the same problem that every other person has, too. It's the same problem that the sinful woman had. A need for grace. A need for forgiveness. A need for peace with God that you can't achieve on your own. And according to Paul, there's only one solution. And that's the solution that's being offered to you. The solution is Christ's blood. The blood of the one who offered himself up as a sacrifice to take your punishment upon himself. I pray this morning that you would be willing to humble yourself at the feet of Jesus the way that sinful woman did. And leave this morning with peace, no matter who you are or what you've done. And if you're not ready to do that yet, I pray that you would at least spend some time in Scripture and spend some time with Jesus. Because like that Pharisee, you might find Jesus exposing a problem that you didn't think you had. And while that may sound scary, again, it may sound intimidating, it's actually joyful. Because the person who exposes the problem is also the one who solved the problem once and for all at the cross for you and for me. Whatever your problems may be, whatever they look like, no matter how many times they've occurred over and over again, no matter how many times you've tried to keep it a secret, I pray this morning that you would leave your problems at the feet of Jesus and leave here like that sinful woman did, leaving in peace. Let's pray. Father, again, we're very grateful for all that you've done for us. We live in a world that is so often not peaceful. There is pain and there's brokenness and there's heartache and there's imperfection and there's injustice, all kinds of stuff, God. And yet, what we learn this morning is that in spite of all the problems, we're called to bring them to your feet, to lay them at your feet, to repent of our sin, to worship you, and leave with peace. And for us, peace might not be the absence of all of our problems. We may pray to you this morning and and leave our problems at your feet, and yet the problems don't necessarily go away. We leave here and the problem's still there. It's not that easy. But God, I also pray that we can leave here in peace, knowing that Even though the problems are very real, even though the problems may still be there, that we have a sense of peace because we love you, and we trust you, and we believe in you, and you died for us. God, thank you for sending your son to solve the biggest problem of all. That's way bigger than losing a servant, way bigger than having a hard time making ends meet way bigger than having somebody interrupt a meal. But you sent your son to solve the problem of our sin once and for all at the cross. We are so grateful for that. And I pray that we would remember that at all times, no matter what problems may come our way. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In chapter 8, Jesus tells a very famous parable, the parable of the sower, about how different people will respond to the gospel in different ways. Some people will respond and bear fruit, and some people won't for various reasons. But 
We want to give you that opportunity this morning to respond to the gospel, to let that seed that's been sown grow in you and bear fruit. So if you have not yet trusted Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer your questions, and just simply talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Christ, and even pray with you about those problems that you may need to lay at Jesus' feet right now. So if you would, talk to one of those guys as we sing our last song, and we're thankful that you're here this morning.